0: Well, Can we give a big hand for what God has done? I think uh, what I love most about that story is that God used a simple step of faith on Harrison's part, just an invitation to play basketball to radically transform Tim's life. And as we've studied the story of Abraham over the last 14 weeks, man, we've learned that our God is a dynamic God. He's always engaging with his people and inviting us to take a next step in our faith. And what we've been asking you this fall is what's your next step? What is your next step of faith? It might be reaching out to someone like Harrison reached out to Tim. It might be getting more connected here at the church by attending our weekender next weekend, or it might be something as simple as starting to spend time reading the Bible every day. I don't know what your next step is, but I want you to know, and I want you to take it, because throughout history, God has done extraordinary things in the lives of people through ordinary steps of faith. And so what I want to do is I just want to pray now and ask God to give us the resolve and the faith this fall to take whatever step that he is calling us to take. So let's pray. God, thank you that you use ordinary people like us to do very extraordinary things. I thank you for Tim's story. I thank you for saving him and changing not only his life, but his marriage, the trajectory of his marriage, the trajectory of his growing family. I thank you for Harrison's faith and all the people and the Woodlands missional community and at our church that engage with Tim to see that happen. And God, I just pray that you'd give us resolve and faith right now in this room, anyone listening to my voice, Father, to take whatever the next step is that we need to take. God, because we know as we do that, as your people respond in faith, you do amazing things, things beyond what we could ask. Or imagine. So, Lord, do that in us and do that through us in this community. We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest, I'm thrilled that you're here. Do me a favor, stop by the first-time guest tent on your way out so that we can follow up with you this week and give you just a small gift to say, Thanks for being with us. If you have been with us for a while, you know we've been studying the life of Abraham for a while, about 14 weeks. And today we come to the pinnacle of the Abraham story. Genesis chapter 22 is the most important story in Abraham's life. It's what he is most well known for. It's what is most often referenced by other parts of the Bible when referring to Abraham's life. And this chapter is all about one thing. It's all about passing tests. It's all about passing tests. And I'm not talking about the kind of tests you had to pass in college, or you may have had to pass like last week if you're a college student. I'm not talking about the kind of tests you have to pass maybe in your industry to say certified, or you have to pass at the DMV to get a license. I'm talking about the kind of tests that God will bring into your life to strengthen your faith. Here's the reality. Here's what the scriptures teach us. God is more interested in your spiritual development than you are. And as a result, he will intentionally bring you into situations that stretch your faith in order to strengthen your faith. God will intentionally bring you into situations to stretch your faith in order to strengthen your faith. Because here's what we all know. There is no growth without testing. There is no growth without testing. If you want to be smarter or you want to be stronger or you want to be wiser or you want to increase your creative ability, you have to be tested. There is no growth without testing which is why God will regularly bring you into a place of testing in your life. So here's what that means. If you are a follower of Jesus here tonight, it is no longer a question of if you will be tested. It is a question of how you will pass that test when it comes. It is not a question of if you will be tested. You're going to be tested. Maybe you're being tested right now. Maybe you're in a season of testing right now. The question is not if the test will come. The question is how can you pass the test when it does come? And that is what this story is all about. Abraham faced his most difficult test of faith. This is the hardest thing that ever happened in Abraham's life, and it became the defining moment of his life. And I would offer to you that the defining moments in your life and in your faith will most often be the most challenging moments. And so as we look at Abraham's life, we're going to learn one important thing. This is the takeaway from today, if you don't take away anything else, and it's this, to pass your test, you have to trust your God. To pass your test, you have to learn to trust your God, which of course is very easy to say and very difficult to do. It's very easy to say from a pulpit. It's very easy to say in a church service. It's very difficult to do on Thursday night. It's very difficult to do at work. It's very difficult to do when you're single again or when the bank account is empty or when you get a bad report from the doctor. It is very difficult to do. It's easy to say and difficult to do. But by looking at Abraham's life, we're going to learn how he learn to trust God. And by looking at his life, it will show us how we can learn to trust God as well. So that when you face your test, you can pass it just like Abraham did. So if you have a Bible, meet me in Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse one, which is where we're going to be. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham. So what are these things? Well, these things are the last 10 chapters in the last 30 years of Abraham's life. So Abraham began his personal relationship with God back in Genesis chapter 12, and he had been on a journey of faith ever since. He had had ups and downs. He'd had peaks and valleys, great moments and really bad moments. But but here's the encouraging thing about Abraham. He was more godly now than he was then. He had made progress, and as a result, he was ready for this test. And just so you know, that is the goal of the Christian life. If you are a Christian, the, the goal of your life is that you would be a more godly, steadfast, Self-controlled version of you this year than you were last year, that you would be more prayerful, that you would be more saturated in God's word, that you'd be more full of faith and trust and mercy and compassion this year than you were this time last year. Friends, you will never reach perfection this side of heaven, but that doesn't mean you can't make progress. And so, if you're looking at your life and you're saying, "Ooh, Josh, I'm at, I'm I'm not actually further along," then you need to ask some serious questions because. That is the the calling of every follower of Jesus, not to perfection, but to progress, to looking more and more like Jesus year after year. And the good news is that Abraham did this. He wasn't perfect, but he had made progress. And because he had made progress, he was ready for this test. And and the text says that God tested Abraham. And your translation might actually said tempted Abraham, but that's kind of an unfortunate translation because testing and tempting are different. Testing is, I'm going to try to get you to do the wrong thing. The world and your flesh and the devil will tempt you to do the wrong thing. God will never tempt you, James chapter 1, verse 13 says, but God will very often test you. You see, testing is, I'm going to bring you through a trial to strengthen your faith. I'm going to bring you through a difficult circumstance to teach you to trust me more. That's what God did in Abraham's life, and that's what God will do in your life as well. He might be doing it right now. So it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. So when God spoke, Abraham responded with the same way that a servant would have responded to an employer in those days like this. Here I am. You see, if you were a servant, no matter where you were in the household and you heard your your employer call your name, you presented yourself ready to do whatever they asked you to do. That is how Abraham responded to God's word in a posture of obedience. Let me ask you, is that how you respond to God's word? When you engage with God's word in the Bible, do you engage with a here I am attitude? Do you engage with the willingness to say, Lord, whatever your word says, I'm going to obey. When you open up this word, you say, here I am, Lord, I want you to shape me. Or do you say, I don't really like that. I'm going to flip the page. Right? Let's be honest. We all like to be inspired and encouraged by the Bible, don't we? How many of us are willing to be challenged and changed by it? Do you come to the scriptures and you say, I don't like what that says about sexuality or I don't like what that says about finances or I don't like what that says about about priorities in my life. I'm just gonna, Philippians 4.13 is good though. Right, the truth is we all like, I mean, I'm that way too. We all like to be inspired and built up and encouraged and the Bible will do that, but the Bible will also challenge you. It will call you to change. Do you know why? Because God wants you to become what he created you to be. Ephesians chapter two says that God saved you four good works that he has prepared for you to do. That means you have a purpose in life. That means God wants to make you more in the image of Christ and he wants to send you out into our community to make a difference. Isn't that really what you want? Isn't that deep down what you want? You get there as you come to God's word and say, here I am, even though this is challenging and this, this is convicting and this pushes on me, God, I am here to do your will. Abraham wasn't there at the beginning of his life, but by this point in his walk of faith, he had gotten there. Friends, the best indicator of spiritual maturity is not how many Sunday school classes you've taught. It's how willingly you obey God's word when you read it. The best indicator of spiritual maturity is not how many small groups you've led or how many ministries you're a part of or how many different teams you serve on. Those are all great things. But really the indication of spiritual maturity is when you read God's word, do you respond with a here I am attitude? That's what Abraham did, even though, hear me, this is going to be a very difficult command, a very difficult command. Look at verse two. He being God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So God is telling Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to go and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And this is a very challenging passage. It's very confusing, right? What what in the world is God doing? And actually this week, I was talking to my son about the sermon and he said, said, dad, why did God want Abraham to kill his son? Right? It's a weird thing to ask your dad, right? (laughs) And so I'll just tell you what I told him, okay? I'll give you the same answer. I said, well, two reasons. I said, number one, God didn't really want him to. And we know that because spoiler alert, God doesn't let him go through with it, okay? God intervenes and stops it. And number two, we know later in the Bible, in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God explicitly forbids child sacrifice. So we know that that wasn't actually God's heart. So the question is, what was God doing? Why was God asking Abraham to do this? Because he was testing him. God was testing Abraham and he was testing a very specific part of Abraham's life. You see, Abraham had lots of money. Abraham had thousands of livestock. Abraham had hundreds of people who worked for him, but Abraham only had one son. And he had waited a hundred years to get that child. And so Abraham was tempted to do what so many parents today do. He was tempted to make Isaac the center of his life instead of the Lord. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen. You've You've got a guy and a girl and they're growing in faith and they're married and they're trying to walk with God and then they have kids and all of a sudden, life is all about those kids. It's all about those kids. Now, all of a sudden, life is all about keeping those kids safe, secure, and sanitized, right? It's about maximizing those kids' athletic ability and their educational opportunities, and they stop going to church, and they stop being involved in community, and they stop studying their Bible, and it breaks my heart because what they're doing is they're removing from their family the thing that their kids need most, the best thing you can do for your kids is to have a vibrant personal relationship with Christ. You will be a more gentle mother. You'll be a more patient father. You will be better at raising them in the training and instruction of the Lord if you are following Christ. Here's a a fascinating fact. What is the greatest indicator of a child's future faith? It's not their parents' faith. You'd think it would be, right? I thought that. It's their parents' church involvement. It's interesting. Why would that be? Because involvement in the local church is where the rubber meets the road of your faith. Guys, here's the deal. Kids are smart. If they hear you say Jesus is Lord, but they watch you prioritize everything else, they're going to read between the lines. But if they hear you say Jesus is Lord, and then they see you live it out in the local church, if they see you studying the scriptures and living in community and sacrificing and saying, hey, I'm sorry, we can't do travel whatever because we need to be in the church. And hey, I'm sorry, you can't be in activities every single night of the week because we need to be in our missional community. And I'm sorry that you can't, you know, we can't afford that because we're giving to the church. Do you know what that does in their life? It says Jesus matters. matters. And do you know what happens when you say that and then you don't do anything? Your kids go, Jesus doesn't matter. This whole thing is a farce. This is startling. The data shows that kids who grow up in families that have religious values but are not religiously involved turn out exactly the same as kids who grow up in homes with no religious values. But kids who grow up in families that are deeply involved in the local church more often than not, end up walking with God as adults. Let that sink in for a second. What that means is that if you want your son or daughter to repent, believe in Christ, and be saved from their sin and to spend eternity with God, the most important thing you can do for them is not protect their nap schedule. It's not to make sure they never get sick. It's not to make sure they're on all the right travel sports teams. It is to have them deeply involved in the local church. One of our values here is that we invest in the church. We believe that the church is the bride of Christ and that that's a big deal and that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. It's why we invest in church planting. It's why we do membership here. It's why we do the weekender because we want you to invest in the church. And I know when I say that, it sounds self-serving, right? I'm a pastor, but hear me. It's not for me. It's for you. I want the church for you and I want the church for your kids, And so the question that all of us parents have to ask is, are my kids first in my life or is God? That is what God was driving at in Abraham's life. All right, look at verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So did Abraham rise early in the morning because he was full of faith or because he couldn't sleep the night before? We don't know. Commentators disagree. But what we do know is that he showed a pretty remarkable level of faith by by preparing to, to go do this, right? By cutting the wood and saddling donkeys and starting out on the trip. Abraham didn't obey because he felt like it. Abraham obeyed because he trusted God's character. Friends, faith isn't what you feel. Faith is what you do because of what you believe. Faith isn't what you feel. Faith is what you do because of what you believe. Oftentimes, you will not feel like obeying God. Oftentimes, you will not feel like loving your spouse. Oftentimes, you will not feel like studying the Bible. Oftentimes, you will not feel like going to missional community. There's lots of times I don't feel like doing the things that we're called to do, but faith is not what we feel. Faith is what we do because of what we believe. Verse four, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, that's interesting. Worship. God didn't say worship, God said sacrifice. What's all this worship business? Would well, you know, fun fact, the word for worship and sacrifice in the Hebrew almost the exact same word? Because they're so closely related. You see, for most of us, if I said, Hey, when do we worship? you'd say before and after the sermon, right? Which is true. We we worship by singing, but Romans chapter 12 also tells us that we worship by offering our lives as a sacrifice to the Lord. So we worship in singing, but we also worship in sacrificing. So when you arrive early here to help us get set up and welcome people, you sacrifice your time, you're worshiping. When you invest in our kids ministry to disciple the next generation and you're taking temperatures out there on the playground, you are worshiping. When you give of your time and your talent and your money to the mission of God and you can't go on that vacation because you're tithing or you can't buy that new wardrobe or afford that brand new car, you're worshiping you see, we worship in singing, but we also worship in sacrifice. And Abraham understood that. He understood that they were not two separate categories, but they were overlaid. And don't miss what Abraham said to the servants. You see this? He says, I and the boy will go over and worship and then come again to you. Now, is he just lying, right? Is Abraham just like, oh, I can't let them know I'm going to kill Isaac. They won't let me do it. No, that's not typically how the Bible works. It is, the Bible is expressing Abraham's deepest held conviction, and here's, here's what we think is happening right here. Abraham was expressing the very earliest faith in the resurrection. It's in seed form. It's not sophisticated. but Hebrews chapter 11, which is a New Testament passage, tells us that Abraham had this deep belief that if he had to sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him again from the dead. That God believed that since God would, that, that Abraham believed that since God was able to create a miracle baby, God could also raise his child from the dead. He had this deep-seated belief. And we see Abraham exhibit his trust in the Lord in this test. Look at verse six. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, so on his back. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So Isaac Isaac says, dad, We've got the wood, you've got the knife, you've got the flint to create the spark, but, but where's the lamb for the offering? And what we know is that there was no lamb, that Isaac was the offering, but Isaac doesn't know that. And Abraham's having to answer his son, look him in the eyes and tell him the answer. And it's, and it's very important that you see what Abraham says. This is the greatest moment in Abraham's life. This is his greatest spiritual moment. This is the pinnacle of his entire story. Don't miss it. Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Abraham had a deep seated faith in God's character. So when God called him to do this just unimaginable thing, Abraham said, I don't understand this. This is confusing. I don't know why this is happening, but I trust you, Lord. And that word in Hebrew, God will provide, is actually much stronger than that. Do you know what that word means? It means God will see to it. God will see to it. For 35 years, God had seen to it in Abraham's life. When God called Abraham out of Ur, God saw to his protection and provision. When Abraham screwed it all up and went down to Egypt, God saw to it. When Abraham came back and had to choose to live in the hill country away from Sodom and Gomorrah, God saw to it. When Abraham had to go out and rescue his nephew Lot and defeat this huge army, God saw to it. When Abraham was 100 years old and his wife was 90 and they had no natural hope of a child and they needed a supernatural intervention, God saw to it. God had seen to it for 35 years and so Abraham said, I believe and I trust that God will see to it again. Isn't that what you need in your tests? Isn't that what you need in your trials? Isn't that what you need in your temptations? When you're walking through anxiety, isn't that what you need? When you're walking through depression, isn't that what you need? when you're walking through unemployment, when you're walking through loneliness, when you're single again, when you get a bad grade back on the exam, isn't that what you need? You need to believe at the gut level, God will see to it. You need to believe that God sees you and God knows and God cares and God will provide. That is what you need in your trial. And that is what Abraham had. How did he have it? He had 35 years of evidence. He had 35 years of evidence. When I was coaching college football, we had this saying, past performance is the best indicator of future performance. Which meant, if the kid played well last year, he'll probably play well again. And if he didn't play well last year, don't get your hopes up, right? Well, when it comes to trusting God, you need to look at the past performance of God in your life. Some of you have 35 years of God being faithful like Abraham. Some of you don't have that. Some of you have a year or two. But I know that God has been faithful in your life. You are here today because God has been faithful to your life and practically what you need to do is you need to reflect upon that. Maybe you get out a journal and just think through what are ways God's been been faithful to me this year? What are ways God's been faithful to me this semester? What are ways that God has been faithful to me and reflect on that and let that fill you with hope so when you face your test, you say the Lord will provide for himself the lamb. Verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So Abraham reached the top of this, of this mount and he did what he had done dozens of times before. He took wood and he built an altar. He set up some kindling underneath the altar that he could light with his flint to set a blaze. But then he did something that he'd never done before. Rather than taking an animal and slaughtering that animal, he took his son Isaac and he bound him and he laid him on the altar. Preparing to offer him as a sacrifice. And this verse highlights the remarkable obedience of Abraham. It does. But it also highlights the incredible faith of Isaac as well. The incredible faith of Isaac as well. Because here's what we all know. Isaac could have taken Abraham, right? I mean, Abraham was 115. And commentators say that Isaac was between 13 and 20. I remember the moment when I was 14 or 15 that I realized I could take my dad. It's kind of a weird moment. I was like, well, I could probably take him, you know? My personal goal in fitness is that my son will never be able to say that, (laughs) right? 80 years old, anyway, right? But I mean, Isaac, at the very least, Isaac could have run away, right? I mean, Isaac was not on that altar against his will. The only way Isaac was on that altar is because he went willingly. He was willingly bound and placed on the altar. So we see the son of promise, willingly lay down his life according to the will of his father. The son of promise, willingly lay down his life according to the will of his father. Interesting. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So the Lord intervenes, he he stops Abraham from hurting his son, and he reveals the motivation for this obedience. Do you see what it was? Was it the love of God? It's the fear of God. The angel says, I now know that you fear the Lord above all else. What What is the fear of God? The fear of God means that you have a deep reverence and respect for God's holiness and power. And people who are wise fear the right things. My kids love going to the beach, but we are trying to teach them a healthy fear of the ocean. We're teaching them to respect riptides and to practice wisdom and restraint when they are in the ocean. Why? Because the ocean is a wonderful thing when you respect it, but it's a very dangerous thing when you don't. Friends, in the same way God is a wonderful God, when you respect him. But if you approach God flippantly, it's dangerous. So the question I'd ask you is not, do you love God? I hope you do. Do you fear God? Do you have a healthy respect and reverence for the Lord God Almighty, for the one who sits enthroned above the heavens and the earth, for the one who speaks, who speaks and makes the nations obey to the one who every power on this earth is like a grasshopper in his sight. Do you have a healthy fear and reverence for that God? Abraham did, and it was that thing which motivated him to obey. You see, Abraham had seen the power of God. He'd seen the power of God create a miracle baby. He'd also seen the power of God judge Sodom and Gomorrah. So when the Lord asked him to do this thing, he said, Lord, here I am. Here I am. You see, there are three primary motivations for obedience in the scriptures, three of them. The fear of Lord, the love of God and the rewards of God, the fear of God, the love of God, and the rewards of God. And you need all three in your tool belt if you're going to live a faithful Christian life. Now, unfortunately, most churches only preach one of these. So fundamentalist churches preach a lot of the fear of God, right? Hell and wrath and judgment. You better repent and believe. More liberal churches really only preach the love of God. Like, man, everybody's okay. Everybody goes to a better place. You can do whatever you want. God doesn't really care. And then prosperity churches preach like, you give $10 and God will give you a Ferrari, that kind of thing. Well, any one of those divorced from the other two will lead you into a ditch. It will lead you into a bad place. We need all three if we're going to live faithful, obedient lives. Let me just give you an example. How do you, how do you love and care for a spouse when your spouse is being difficult? I will to say it from my perspective. Let's say Meredith was ever difficult, not that she ever is. Well, number one, the fear of God. That's God's daughter. That's God's daughter. He paid for her salvation. He loves her. He knows every hair on her head. I better treat her with respect. I better care for her. The fear of God, the love of God. Man, Jesus loved me. Jesus laid his life down for me when I was difficult. Jesus continues to be patient with me when I'm difficult. I want to love my wife well. The rewards of God. When you order your marriage according to the principles of God's word, he promises that your marriage will will prosper. It'll be blessed. You will have more peace in your household. Your kids will tend to grow up more stable right? The the, the blessings of God, the rewards of God. We need all three if we're going to live an obedient Christian life. And Abraham is a good picture here of how the fear of God can motivate our obedience in a healthy way. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham noticed that there was a ram caught by his horns, and that's important because it means the ram wasn't scratched or blemished. It was caught by the horns. And as a result, that lamb could be offered as a sacrifice to God. It had to be an unblemished sacrifice. And so Abraham went and he took this ram and he put this ram on the altar and the knife that he thought he was going to have to bring down on his son, he brought down on this ram. And he offered this ram instead of, instead of Isaac. In that phrase, instead of, is one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible because it gets at the heart of Christianity. At the heart of Christianity is this remarkable truth that Jesus Christ died instead of you. That Jesus Christ died instead of you and instead of me. Think of it this way. The definition of sin is you substituting yourself for God. That's what we do. Every time we read the Bible and just say, no, I'm not going to do that, you're acting like you're God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. The the sin of taking the fruit from the tree was the the outworking of the heart sin of I'm going to be God. I know God told me not to take this, but I'm going to do it anyway. The definition of sin is you substituting yourself for God. The definition of salvation is God substituting himself for you. Jesus Christ living the life that you should have lived. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't start his public ministry till his 30s, why not just go ahead and get it over with, all right, 15, 16? Because he needed to live every stage of your life perfectly that you failed to live perfectly. He needed to be the perfect kid, the perfect adolescent, the perfect teenager, the perfect college student, the perfect young adult, the perfect adult. In Jewish culture, you became a full-fledged adult at 30. Jesus lived every stage perfectly so that he could trade places with us. And then he died a gruesome death on the cross. Why? Because that is what our sins deserve. The incredible truth of the Christian message is that Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. He paid for your sins on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. He died instead of you. Abraham would probably have cried out, thank God for the ram. We today should cry out, thank God for the lamb, for the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Instead of is the core of the Christian message. Verse 14 So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Abraham didn't name the place the Lord did provide. He named the place the Lord will provide. Why? Because it was the language of faith. It was Abraham looking back and saying, just as God provided a ram instead of my son, God will continue to provide for his people. And that's what happened. In verses 19 or 15 through 19, the Lord reaffirmed his amazing promise to Abraham. He said, your descendants are going to be more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And then in verse 20, we have this really interesting thing about Abraham's brother Nahor and how Nahor had all these kids. And when you first read it, you're like, this is super random, right? You're like, why is this going here? Until you realize the name Rebekah is in those descendants. Who was is Rebekah? Isaac's wife. Before Isaac could have descendants, he had to have a wife. What Abraham didn't realize is this entire time, God was providing for him in a whole other part of the world that he didn't even know about. God was working things together for the good of Abraham's family. He didn't even know it. God gave Abraham a ram for his offering and a wife for his son. You see, Abraham passed this test. He passed this test because he trusted his God. And if you are going to pass your tests, you have to learn to do the same thing. When you are lonely, you have to trust God's companionship. When you are anxious, you have to trust God's peace. When you're struggling financially, you have to trust God's provision. When you're worried about the coronavirus or the election or about your exams or about your kids... Uh, Whatever you're worried about, you have to learn to trust God's goodness and control and direction in your life. If you're going to pass your test, you have to learn to trust your God. But how? How? How do we learn to do this? This is easy to say on a Sunday, and it's very difficult to do in our lives. How do you learn to trust God in the midst of your trials and your temptations and your tests? You do it by understanding the connection between Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and God's sacrifice of Jesus. You see, this story is one long foreshadowing of the sacrifice of God the Son by God the Father. Consider just for a second the parallels. Both Isaac and Jesus were miraculously born. Isaac to an old woman, Jesus to a virgin. Both were only sons deeply loved by their fathers. Both rode to their sacrifice on donkeys. Both carried the wood of their execution on their backs up the hill. Both offered themselves willingly. Isaac got up on the altar and Jesus said, I lay my life down willingly. No one takes it from me. Both asked their father's questions. Isaac said, Father, where is the lamb? Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you starting to see these connections? But it gets even deeper than that. Mount Moriah, where Isaac was offered, is part of a mountain range. Do you know what the peak of that mountain range is? Calvary. The very place that Jesus was crucified. They were crucified. They were offered in the same mountain area. I mean, it's just, how long was the journey? Abraham walked for three days, assuming his son was dead, right? As good as dead. And then he got him back. He was resurrected. How long was Jesus in the grave? Three days in the grave, and then he was resurrected. What's the very first thing that Isaac gets after his figurative resurrection? He gets a wife, Rebecca. What is the first thing Jesus gets after his literal resurrection? He gets a wife, the church. Are you seeing the connections? Are you seeing that this whole story is pointing us forward to the one true story, the one main story of the scriptures, which is the remarkable, scandalous, mind-blowing sacrifice of God the Son by God the Father. You see, friends, there are so many parallels. There are so many similarities between this story when you start to look at them. But there is one major difference God had to go through with it. God had to go through with it. There was no ram for Jesus. There was no one else who could be sacrificed instead of Jesus. For you and I to be forgiven of our sins, the knife had to fall. The penalty had to be paid and the son had to be sacrificed. When we look at the story of Abraham, our hearts cry out, how much did that man love God? But when we look at the story of the cross, our hearts should cry out, how much does God love man? Friends, this is how you learn to trust your God in the midst of your temptations and your trials and your tests and your sufferings and your anxieties and all the things that you will walk through in life. You look at Jesus, the truer and better Isaac, and you say, if God sacrificed his son, his only son, the son whom he loved for me, then I can trust him to provide in whatever I'm going through. Or as the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and kind. And I thank you that your love for us is such that when it required the death of your son to save your people, that you went through with it. Father, I pray that that reality would sink into our hearts tonight. I pray for those, Father, that don't know you. that they would be moved by your extraordinary love, your sacrificial love for them, and that they would learn to trust you and to repent and believe. Father, I pray for those who do know you but are struggling, they're walking through trials and tests, their faith is weak. I pray that you would strengthen their faith, you would strengthen their resolve to the reminder of the gospel message that when the only way for them to be saved was the death of your son, you willingly willingly went through with it and that Jesus hung on the cross for them. God, give us faith to believe and to respond in obedience like Abraham. We love you. Amen. Well, in response to these things, would you stand and worship with us?